E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Dominique Lafon of Comp Lafon in Merceau. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Very nice to see you. So you actually originally grew up in Paris when you were a kid. Yeah, my father was an engineer, and he was in charge of the demand, but he was like not exactly spending his time at the demand. And his job was more in Paris. So until I was seven, I was in, uh, in Paris, and my father was like moving every weekend down to Meursault to check it out, to check the demand. And he'd taken over in, in the 50s? In 56, yeah. After a kind of a family fight where part of the family wanted to sell the demand and he tried to stop that. And he, he succeeded, actually. So he was an engineer and he had sharecroppers working for him. Yes, that's how it was organized and that's how the demand has been organized from start. They never thought of working the land themselves because they had something else to do and they had people to work the land. It's how it was organized, so you get half the crop Sometimes uh, people would sell the half of the crop. We've always made the wine out of half the crop. And one of those sharecroppers was Pierre Moret? Exactly. From uh, Domaine Leflevin and also his own? Yes, his own domain. And his father, Auguste Moret, before, who I met when I was very young. Exceptional man, too. But we had seven sharecroppers amongst them. People from Volnay, other guys from uh, Meursault also. But Pierre Moret had the biggest chunk, like the Meursault Perrière, Meursault Genevrière, Meursault Charme, the Montrachet. So it was a pretty big deal when we talked to him about stopping those uh, agreement contracts. What's he like in person, Pierre Moret? He's a very cool, collected guy, very serious at work. But I think as a vigneron, like 30 years ago or more, quite modern in his thinking. And open-minded. You know, Burgundy was very traditional, kind of old-fashioned. I'm not talking about the way he was working or cultivating, but his thinking was modern. Over all the sharecroppers, he was the more moderate. In that time, people stopped plowing, starting using weed killers, very heavy and fertilizer. He's always been very careful on that. So... He's been moderate, but he was very smart at that time to be like this. And 
I think they were also very aware at that time of quality and what meant quality and working on the grapes. When other of our sharecropper would sell the grapes to shippers, so it was like mass production or more mass production type of uh, viticulture. Your dad was known for leaving wine in barrel if it wasn't showing the way he wanted it. He would leave it an extra year or something. Yeah, yeah, he's done that. It's uh, funny, there's lots of stories about that, like the 63s, things like this. Most of it is like he was not waiting for any money out of the domain. So it was like, okay, you know, I make the wine, I have fun with it, and eventually, if it turns out well, and if I find a client, that might work. And if the fermentation is slow, if uh, other things happen, well, okay, we might lose the wine, we might never sell it, uh, and that was how it was going. Which is why when I, when I started taking over, I, I first started with my brother, the demand was like broke, fully broke because he never cared about that. My father never cared about money. The part that has always been a mystery to me is why you chose to do that, because you would have been the first in the family to focus full-time on the wine, right? Yeah. So I was very young. I was a kid, and I remember going to school, and I had a friend whose father was an agriculture guy. He was cultivating land, wheat or whatever. And I have a very strong memory of going with my friend on his father's tractor and plowing kind of like a kid driving the tractor and smelling that earth smell and to me it's something which is really still in my mind and very young I thought uh, I wanted to do something with land with a uh, cultivation of whatever it could have been cattle could have been trees could have been wheat or what that was kind of what I I wished to do a way of living. And um, it actually took me a while to understand that behind the wine, there was agriculture, there was vineyards. It took me a while just because my father was not doing it. And I was just seeing the last side of it, the wine, the grapes, and the wine. And so my interest into wine started with agriculture. And um, when I got older, I discovered all the interests of wine. That's interesting because one of your other interests is like earth art, right? A lot. Yes, yes. We're not artists, first of all. But I think land art reflects what we are doing in a way. And I, I like the fact that land art disappears when it's done. It's, it doesn't stay forever. It's not a, something you get put on your wall. Uh, I think when you work agriculture, if you do wine, it's how it goes. You know, wine fades. What you do on the land disappears. And it's a great reflect of life. You know, we're all going to die. And to me, that feeling, when I look at land art, is very strong. So you came back to Burgundy around the 80s. Oh, no, earlier. I'm pretty old. I was born in 58. Actually, I was back in Burgundy in 1967, something like this, or a bit earlier even. And I, I, I have great memories of um, the 68 with all the kind of revolution in France. I was a kid and it was so funny. I remember Bonn was quiet 
But even in Bourne, there was people in the streets and all that. And um, I remember my father being kind of uh, nervous about it. And as kids, it was very funny for us. It was fun. <laughs> and that would have been about the time that the Wasserman showed up in Burgundy too, right? I think so. But I, I haven't met Becky uh, before I was like 20 years old after my studies, viticultural studies. Actually, Becky was buying wine from my father. And after my uh, viticulture and analogy studies, I was uh, looking for an intern in the U.S. And my dad talked to Becky, and Becky got me a kind of a job as intern in California. So that's how I first met her. And then we've had a long story together, because when I came back after a few things I've done, I was out of work. My father was not ready to have me working with him. So I knocked on Becky's door and said, hey, you know, I'm looking for a job. Will you have something? And I started working for her. I was in 82, and I've worked four years with Becky, buying the wine, selling the wine. And it's been a great experience and an outstanding experience. Because at my age, having the time, because Becky was very relaxed on that, to go around Burgundy, to find more wines, to find more producers, to visit with people like Gérard Potel at the time, Michel Lafarge, DRC, and many, many, many others. And to be in contact with those guys, to learn about their technique, to learn how to be a wine buyer, to um, be able to promote the wines, to sell the wine to the U.S. I had a credit card. I was doing three trips a year to the U.S. selling wine. And uh, I've learned so much on the commercial side, on selling. But I've also learned a lot from the producers I was buying wine from. I was buying wine from Pierre Moret, we mentioned. I was buying wine from Comte Lafont, of course, from the Michelot in Meursault. So many growers. And, um, you know, there was a tight group around Becky. And Gérard Potel was one of them, Michel Lafarge. And Gérard Potel is very, very strong in my memory and showed me a lot. How you decide harvest, when you think it's ripe, what should it taste like, how you process the grapes, how you handle it, how you handle a tank, and what was their vision of wine, what they think of wine, and what is their vision. And it was very good for me because it gave me other visions than my father's vision. So I I've quickly understood there was not one way to make wine. And you could get to high-quality wine many different ways. Because you used to speak also with Jacques D'Angerville and Hubert de Monti, right? Of course. Hubert was very strong on expression of terroir, what we call the climat now. And he was very, very serious about how a wine should taste like. Then his philosophy was very strong on like very low chapterization, quite tough wines, strong wines, but his old wines were just amazing. And most of the talks I had with Hubert was not that much on winemaking, but on how the wine tastes like and how it should taste like and drinking all the wines. In relation to the cruise? Yes, exactly. And one of the things that you did for Becky was really talk to the growers about what they were doing, like in terms of method, right? No, it was not my job. Oh, okay. <laughs> Somebody no. else. Well, we, you know, uh, when um, most of my job was uh, at that time, 
like finding more growers because it was a time when it was very possible. Like Becky would tell me, uh, we need to find more growers in Vonormanie. And uh, I would do three days in Vonormanie. I would take the phone book and see growers and do five of them a day, taste, 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 taste. And if I liked the grower, I would take a few samples, call Becky in the evening, say, hey, I got someone. And some days there was nothing interesting. Or the person was like saying, I'm, I don't bottle wine and the wine might be good. And then I would say, but would you bottle wine in the future? Could we get something? So it was very open. And I'd be on part of the portfolio like this because it was easy. It was open at the time in the 80s. And was searching for more wines, but uh, the job has never been to tell people how to make wine. It was more like find out where the wine was good. And then uh, when I was back to the office with Becky, we would taste together. So pick what we like. And then I would call clients and say, hey, I got this beautiful 20 cases of Savigny Premier Cru. I think you'd love it. And will you take it? It's interesting that you had so much exposure with that older generation because you're sort of associated with the next generation of mm-hmm. like Grivo, Rumier, yourself, and then you used to taste with Patrick Bees a lot, right? Yeah, and uh, Jacques Cess and all the, this group. I think it's interesting because my generation has one foot in the old time and one foot in the new generation. When I was young, I've known Pierre Ramonet, for example. I've known uh, Mr. Renault from Rayas. Jacques Dangerville and other people, and those was like all-time people, real all-time people. And, uh, you know, I was a kid, and Pierre Ramonet was talking to me. Um, we are the generation that switched things in Burgundy, but we've known those old people. We've known or they talked to us about how hard it was in the past to work, to sell the wine, to make a living out of it. We had a once-a-year meeting at the restaurant à la chapelle with all those producers and uh i was very young uh, henri jaillet was here too uh jacques d'angerville of course and, and pierre ramonet exceptional person and mr renault from hayas and one day i was sitting next to each other and pierre ramonet was speaking with that very heavy burgundian accent and uh, mr renault was speaking with his southern accent and they were fighting because they were not understanding each other. So I started do- translating for, for those guys so that they understand each other. That's amazing. Yes. And Jaye must have had some influence on you because for most of your career, you didn't use stems, right? Yes, in a way. Uh, Henri Jaye was uh, someone very special. He was really nice with us, the new generation. So we used to have uh, a visit a year an appointment with him to taste in his salon with Christophe Fumier, with Etienne Griveaux, sometimes with Patrick Bees. And yes, he was a no-stem guy, completely, mm, and lovely person. Did you see that that generation was working different in the vineyards, your generation, like uh, Rumier, Griveaux, yourself? Uh, first of all, all of us had learned viticulture and enology in university. We thought it was uh, really time for a change because... A lot of people were uh, not that happy with the general level of quality in Burgundy. And we quickly found out we had to work in the vineyard. We had to do it another way. So like uh, thinking about uh, the effect of weed killers, thinking about the effect of heavy fertilizers, 
chemical fertilizers like nitrogen and all that um, was uh, something important. Uh, and at the same time, we were talking about winemaking. And I think what my generation brought in cellars is being cleaner, being uh, more serious about everything, more control on fermentation, yeast, following everything. But the major thing has been uh, getting better grapes. You stopped the sharecropping contracts. In uh, 87, yes. And as those contracts are nine years, I finished taking over in 93. So it took me a little bit of time to get all the vineyards back, which in a way was good because I started the first year in 87. I had to run four hectares. And as I've never done it before, uh, my father knew nothing about it. I had a new tractor and I had to get used to it, which uh, actually when you have no one to tell you how to do it, uh, it's kind of hard. Every time you learn, it's because you do a mistake. So it's like when you break the machine, when you break some vines, when you, and you're like all passed off. And uh... <laughs> When did you change the crusher to stammer? At my father's time, the setup was equipped like it looked like uh, after the war kind of equipment. So it was like so old, so just like amazingly old. So we bought a first crusher, this Tema, because that was in fashion. It was a Demoisie. Everybody had that one. And everybody said it's the best machine on the planet. So we bought it. And uh, we bought it in 87, actually, for the first crush. And it took me 10 years to find out it was not that good. And it was not that good because it was crushing. And the machine was like going fast, was beyond to treat a big amount of grapes. And that's not what we needed. So my question at that time was more like, okay, I like the old clusters type of wine. I like the sexiness of it and the type of fruit it brings, but I don't like the weediness of the stems. So the idea was to get a lot of whole berries, not crushed, and work on that inside fermentation without having the stems. And at the time on the market came new distemmer, which were not crusher, and that did the job. So I changed it in 97, first time. And ever since I bought another one, maybe another 10 years after, because then, you know, there's more equipment coming on the market, better equipment. So we, I still have an eye on that. It's not finished. <laughs> for like the Montali, you use a lot of whole berry today. Yeah, but for all the wines, for the Sentinel and all that, I, I even I even do, I play with a, a little bit of all cluster or 50% on small tanks just for me to learn. But I, I'm not as comfortable working with stems than uh, being destemmed. It's like uh, I see where I'm going if it's destemmed. I don't exactly see where I'm going when I use the stems and all clusters. And I, I used to say one because, you know, doing all clusters is so much in fashion now in Burgundy. So it's like, if you want to please your clients, you tell them you're all cluster. So I, I usually say, I'm very sorry, I'm not in fashion. I distem. But then, if you look at Côte de Beaune, the tradition has always been to distem. As a joke, I always say that Côte de Beaune might have been more wealthy than Côte de because we could afford a distemmer. Because like Lafarge distems, for example. Lafarge distems, Dangerin distems. De Monti was distemming also. And yeah, most of the people I, I saw in the Côte de Beaune were distemming. 
but uh, Rumier was doing, he was distamped. Griveaux was all distamped. Rousseau was distamped. So the leaders of all clusters at that time were Patrick Bees, Amazing Wines, of course, DRC, Dujac, and uh, later on, Jean-Pierre Desmet at uh, Domaine de l'Arnaud. But they were all friends, so we could compare and talk about it and talk about all these techniques and see how it was going. That seems like something that maybe your father's generation or people of that era wouldn't have had a chance to do, that kind of tasting group. No, because um, I think it was a time when everybody was very jealous of each other, when it was hard, it was tough to sell wine. I remember Patrick B's father, Simon B's, telling me, you know, one day I came to visit and I told him, I told him, oh, I, I have another appointment this afternoon with clients. I'm, I have too much at the moment. It takes a lot of my time. And he just told me, listen, when I was young, we could hear a car coming in Savigny. Everybody was by the door expecting the guy would stop at our place to buy wine. So don't complain. In the 80s, things really started to take off, right? Yeah. When I started working with Becky, that was when the dollar was 10 to the franc, and it was crazy, crazy. The market opened in the U.S. The wines were not that expensive in Burgundy, and as I told you before, I could uh, sell wine on the phone. But at the same time, which seems strange nowadays, I had to supply some importers to buy Pousdor and tell them this is good and the vintage is good. You should go for it. And I would have some importers saying, um, maybe, I'm not sure, but I don't want to take all the wines. And nowadays, if you look at what we have sold, you know, everybody would beg to get it. When did you choose to move to biodynamics? I've done the first experiment in uh, 1995 out of one hectare. Because I had met some people who were already into it. Noël Pinguet in the Loire, uh, actually, who was uh, quite advanced in that. And uh, Le Fleve had a small trial. And Lalou was doing a lot of noise around it already. And then uh, people like Nada Snown, great people, Jean-Claude Rateau in Beaune, who was really into biodynamic. So... I had a guy who was working with me in the vineyard, uh, like a chef de culture, we say, so a vineyard manager. And I took him to see those kind of experiments, meet with those people. And I remember telling him, well, listen, that looks complicated. I just want to show you because I love the way the vineyard look. If you feel it's too complicated, we might not do it. And the guy came back and said, I love also the way the vineyard look. We're going to try, we're going to do it. So I had the team with me which I think is very important because you cannot do biodynamy if you don't have your workers that understand and trust you on that subject. So one hectare in 95, successful, beautiful. Two hectares in uh, 96. So I, I first started with a piece of uh, Vonnet Santeneau, then I did a Chardonnay to see how it was going. I added another hectare in uh, 97. And then I came to the end of the experiment and we had great results. And uh, the question was like, okay, we are having fun. We are playing with BD on three actors. It's not that hard. Will we be able to apply that on the entire domain? 
And that's when I met with Pierre Masson, who is still our consultant, who in a way simplified the BD. Masson worked for Dangerville as well, right? Dangerville, Lafarge, everybody, everybody now. It's not that he works for Lafarge or he works for Dangerville. We've set groups, working groups, so we share our experience. We do meetings. We do three meetings a year, two meetings a year, visit each other vineyard, compare and uh, look at the success we've had, look at the problems we've had and try to find solutions. Because he's, uh, he's also, he works with Devisa, he works with uh, Jean-Louis Trappé. So kind of a key figure for biodynamics in Burgundy. He's important. He's been very important in the fact also that it's, he's very pragmatic. And there's an, an entire esoteric dimension to biodynamics, which he understands very well, which he can explain. But when it gets to the ground, he can be very pragmatic, which makes it uh, more sensible for a grower. So a lot of people don't realize that a third of your production is in red, because I think a lot of people think of you as the great white producer. Yeah. So if you were to take me through the crews that you work today, starting with Merceau and then finishing with Volnay, what are some of those? Well, Comte Lafont, it's now 16 and a half hectares and two-thirds whites, roughly a third red. We have a small piece of marché. If, if I start south, we have the chance... You want to start with the cheap wines? Uh, yes. We have a chance to um, have a sample of each of the great premier crews in Meursault. Not uh, for long, but uh, now we have it since 2011. So Charme, Perrière, Chenevrière, Goutte d'Or, Poruzo, and Boucher. Some very small, some bigger, like almost two hectares of Meursault Charme, one hectare of Perrière, one hectare of Poruzo. Big big pieces of uh, vineyard f for Burgundy standards. Then a Meursault, which is a blend of different vineyards, but altogether it comes with almost two hectares of all those species. Uh, a big chunk of Meursault Claude Labar, which is our backyard, also over two hectares. You know, over two hectares ends up making on a good crop, it's 50 barrels. So it's 15,000 bottles. So that's for the whites. And then if you move north of Meursault, we have a huge chunk of Volnay Centeneau du Milieu, best part of the Centeneau. Uh, as a joke, I always say best premier queen in Volnay. And all my friends in Volnay hates me because it's in Meursault. It's uh, located in Meursault. So we have four actors out of eight of that appellation. And then we have a little bit of Volnay Champagne, tiny bit of Volnay Claude Chêne next to Lafarge Vignette. And... Uh, a nice chunk of uh, Montli Premier Cru du reste. So the Reds, it's only Premier Cru. And Village, Lavon, Premier Cru, Lavon, and Grand Cru, Lavon for, for the Whites. So the Desiree White is actually next to Volnay Centeno, right? It could be called Volnay Centeno. Like, we're getting into a complicated story because that name is a very old name, which was given pre-appellation, pre-AOC. And one section was called Desiree and at that time, my family was not the only one to use Désiré. And when they set the appellation, that place was called Peture or Pelure, Meursault Premier Cru. But as it's on the border between Meursault and Volnay, if you plant it with Pinot Noir, you call it Volnay Centeneau. That's also where Dangerville makes his Meursault Centeneau. And we actually kept the old Désiré name I have labels from the 18-something from my great-grandfather mentioning Désiré. We kept Désiré name, but as it 
doesn't exist as Premier Cru, we sell it as a village wine. So why do you choose to have it in white? I mean, you could do it either way. I haven't choose. It's always been white. In the family, I think it's a very distinctive wine, always more open, more luscious, very charming wine. It's half a nectar, so it's a kind of a special thing, which is lovely. It's, it's interesting. That wine is uh, always very good young, very, very charming. So you would think it doesn't age, but I have beautiful old bottles too. So first reason, I like it like this. And if I plant it with Pinot Noir, I would call it Volnay Santeneau, but not Volnay Santeneau du Milieu. So I'd rather keep that Volnay Santeneau du Milieu, which is the heart of the appellation, the best place for the Volnay Santeneau, and keep that white wine on the side. And that part in the peture or pelure, is, it's a good part for reds also. That's why Pierre Moret makes his Volnay Santeneau. I think the most amazing example is uh, Matro, Thierry Matro. And you can see, if you compare with Santon du Milieu, it's slightly smoother, more elegant. There's more depth in the Santon du Milieu, in a way. So how would you compare Merceau Clodidal Bar with Merceau Charm? We get so much complexity in our Merceau Charm. Also because the, our situation is exceptional. We're upper part of Charm. We're last vineyard south of Merceau. So I have a small track, and my neighbor south is Puligny Combet from Sauzé. And a small track, and it's Perrier de Sous, which is the best part of Merceau. Um, there's more weight in the charm, but there's also more elegance in a way, much greater length uh, in Merceau charm. And the fruit in Clodabar is kind of fat because there's clay, but the finish is uh, like a razor. It's always high acidity. It's very lemony when it's young. Uh, very different. The reason I'm curious about those two crews in particular is that a lot of times when I read, especially older books, they refer to Merceau as kind of a rich wine, maybe some hazelnut, kind of thick fruit. And it's actually somewhat difficult to find Merceau like that today. A lot of it's more mineral defined. And so when I think of charm, and to some extent when I think of Clodel Bar, I think of a bigger expression sometimes than some of the other premier crews that you make. So what do you think about that? Were people wrong in the old days? Did something change? It's kind of hard to describe, but, uh, you know, Chenevrier, for example, it's very Merceau in a way because that it has that roundness and sweetness you expect from Merceau, but it's so elevated and so elegant and, and so lean and mineral, if I can use mineral in the finish, that it doesn't fit into that description. And I think in the old time, there was more making in the cellars than terroir because of the way the vineyards were run. So maybe uh, a little bit of new oak and a lot of stirring the leaves and uh, long aging and losing part of the freshness of the fruit would drive to those type of description. But true that Merceau maybe is uh, stronger, sweeter than the wine you find in Puligny, but it doesn't mean there's no elegance in any of the Merceau wines. Chenevrière, Boucher are exceptional for that. Uh, Perrier, of course. Is the water table different between Merceau and Poligny? Yes, yes. The water table is closer in Poligny. This is why they don't have cellars. We have very deep cellars in Merceau. And um, where Comte Lafont is uh, located, it's, it's very deep uh, cellars. So that makes also for the style of wine, because we can age in barrel longer. And it's nothing against Pliny, it's like this, it's nature. 
I think there's more production potential in Puligny than in Meursault. If you look at crops, on average, Puligny always is, makes a slightly bigger crop than Meursault because maybe the soil is poorer on the, on the hillside in, uh, in Meursault. You know, it's, it's an interesting subject talking about crop because people want to have numbers and it doesn't mean much. I'm going to take another example. Um, Gervais Chambertin and Chambol Musigny, it's the same story. You know, Chambol Musigny is not generous. And if you do, let's say, if you do 40 hectolitres per hectare in Chambol Musigny, you're playing big. If you do 40 hectolitres per hectare in Gervais Chambertin, you're playing small because Gervais Chambertin is very generous. So those figures doesn't mean much in numbers. It depends on where you are. And I think most of the time, what you want to do is use the potential of your soil. And if your soil and your vines are able to give you 40 or 50 and you take them down to 30, it's stupid. And I don't think the wine will show as well as if you are at the balance of the soil and the vines. Because I remember in Simon Loftus's book on Polini Montrachet, he quoted Vincent Lofleve as saying, we tend to keep a few more clusters than some other people as part of the style. And then when I think of Merceau Perrier, which you and Rouleau and some other people work, that tends to be a very low-yielding vineyard, right? It's lower, yes, because uh, the soil is very poor in the Perrier. You cannot yield in the, in the Perrier like you yield in the Clavoyon, for example. Or you could, you could, but artificially, you could using heavy fertilizers, and that's when you're, you're out of the terroir. That's when you lose everything. So how do you see the difference between Merceau Perrier and Genevrière? It's interesting because our two vineyards are next to each other. I mean, I'm at the most southern part of Genevrière, Genevrière dessus, and it links to the Perrier dessous. It's um, 200 meters maybe apart. First of all, Perrier is the greatest vineyard in Merceau, makes the greatest wine in Merceau. So Genevrière looks like not uh, as good, but to me, Genevrière... Vineyard makes the most beautiful wine in Meursault. So there's something attractive to Genevrière. There's something luscious. There's something seductive. It's floral. It's uh, round. But it's round without being heavy. It's, there's a lightness to it, which is why it's interesting. If you look at uh, journalist notes, you, you don't get uh, high notes on Genevrière. You get much better rating on Perrier because it's more discreet. And it's also, Genevrière is, is a wine, it's the type of wine you can drink too young. It's always good. Perrier, maybe slightly bigger, huge tension, much more tension than uh, Genevrière. When it's young, it's kind of, it attacks you and you need the time to soften all these things. I think uh, if you drink a Perrier uh, at the right age, it's an amazing wine. It's more at the level of a Grand Cru than anything else. But it's a pretty strong experience. And to me, it's, it can almost be too much. I'm, I'm always confident and comfortable to open a bottle of Genevrière, whatever happens. I have to think when I open a bottle of Perrier. I have to match it with food. I have, it has to be an event. It has to be something special because it's not as easy to drink. A lot of times I find Perrier more textural and Genevrière more aromatic. Yeah, it's a good way to say it. Genevrière, to me, as a description, is uh, in the air. 
Uh, the soil is very light in January, so you have that feeling of not too much soil and being more in the air. When there's something more earthy, there's a part of earthiness in Perrier, not as much as in the Charme, which is more clay. This is why Perrier is amazing, because it's playing both sides. There's one part which is very ethereal, like what you might get in uh, Genevieve, but there's one part which is stronger, more powerful, as you might get in the best part of Charme. It's combining both things to me. I'm the more northern Merceau Perrier vineyard, Perrier dessous, which is the best part, which was the tête de cuvée. There was two têtes de cuvée in, uh, in Merceau, in the, the old Laval book, uh, Merceau Perrier dessous and Volnay Centenot du Milieu. Yeah, it's interesting that he picked Volnay Centenot du Milieu as the, the really great one. Because uh, it's always made good wines. And if, if you talk to um, shippers like Shadow, they have very old bottles of Centenot du Milieu, and they are, always say it's amazing the way it ages. Yours age as well. Yeah, they do. I found. Yeah, they know, do. 10 they years, do. 15 years. Oh, easy. You uh, know what I mean? The first vintage I've produced is 87, and it was not an easy vintage. And uh, honestly, the wines are they're getting there. It, it's good to drink, but it's not fading. It's in good shape. It's in really good shape. So to speak a little bit more about Genevieve versus Perrier, you know, Perrier seems to age in a linear fashion. Like, I understand where it's going. Sometimes Genevieve kind of comes and goes from moment to moment. It's the interesting thing about Genevieve. If, if you put it in an intellectual way, you put your finger on elegance and refinement. So there's something kind of more fragile to it. It's also harder to make because it's very sensible to uh, overripeness. So, you know, you have to pick exactly at the right time. And there's that thing which is always kind of fragile, kind of like in movement all the time, not as stable, which I think makes it very interesting intellectually also. And then the difference between Porzo and Gutdor, how do those differ? Porzo is quite new for me. Uh, first vintage is 2011. And when I took over that vineyard, I looked at it and I said, hey, there's a lot of clay here. We're going to make it heavy. Uh, it's going to be big, which is also the style of Goudot, which is it's the northern part of Merceau, where the subsoil is very different. You get harder limestone in the bottom, and you get more heavier clay. So Goudot, we know it's powerful, it's big, and there's a a huge energy in the finish to it also, a lot of tension. And so I was expecting like that and more in the Porzo. And actually I'm very surprised because there's that power, there's that richness which comes from uh, the clay, but the finish is more refined than what you have in Goudot. And to me, if you look at the map, in Porzo we are already transitioning towards Genevrière. So there's like, is it possible? Could it be like a blend of Goudot and Genevrière, like the power of Goudot? But in the finish, there's something refined, more refined than Goudot, less uh, abrupt than Goudot. Very interesting. But I think great aging potential, but the oldest I have is 2011, so I, I don't have a clue on that. On the other hand, I've always had amazing Porzo at uh, François Jobard which I was buying wine from also when I was working with Becky. 
That's a cold cellar, and your cellar is known to be quite cold too. Right? Yeah, well, well, it's in the same area, which is called the the new area in Merceau, because everything was built in the in the eighteen seventy. It's uh, slightly high elevations, and we're on um, heavy, tough limestone on all that area. So you, it's hard to dig cellars because it's very strong, but there's no water. I've digged two cellars in my career, and you dig seven, ten meters, and there's no water. There's no problem. Because when you drive into Merceau, you're kind of further up the road than a lot of people. Yes. And so your Montrachet parcel is on the Sasania side, right? Exactly. And what's that been like to work? Uh, I bring back some memories because I took over from Pierre Moret in uh, 1992. And I was waiting for it, of course. And I decided that for the first year, no one of my team would work it. I wanted to print it myself to the tractor myself and all that, just like to get used to the place. And, and honestly, first of all, I was so proud. Being able to touch Moache uh, when you're a winemaker, when you're into that business is like amazing. It's a, first of all, it's a great feeling. And then the place is um, fairly deep soil. There's more soil than in Perrier, for example. A lot of rocks. It's uh, timing for plowing has to be very precise. Too dry, it's too hard. Too wet, it's impossible to do. Then it's a very small spot. It's uh, a third an hectare, so manual work is fast to do. Our vineyard is very old, has some virus, so it's it's a lot of care. Um, I run BD experiments on the Moache because I wanted to see how I could live with virus and help that vineyard against the virus with BD. So not much figure, very short crop. It's exceptional when we do 40, 45 hectoliters per hectare. Usually we're like in the 25 to 35 hectoliters per hectare, which is very small for Chardonnay in Burgundy. I pick it late because it ripened late. I don't pick it much riper than a Merceau, a little bit, because um, I found out that, let's say, you pick which is possible, 12.5, 12.8, below 13, a Merceau, and you get the right balance. I think Moache, you have to go above that. You have to be like closer to 13.5 maybe, because if you pick earlier, it's going to be very strong, high acid, big tension, and the wine will be muted and really hard to appreciate. It holds the clusters very well. You can wait, and it doesn't turn overripe in terms of flavors, and you need that extra ripeness, well, or sugar level. It's not only ripeness, fruit ripeness, sugar level, to um, make it a real moache and to see all the potential of the vineyard. A lot of people pick fairly late the Moache and maybe the Chassin side more than the Puligny side in a way also. Do you get a fair amount of Milrendage sometimes? <sighs> Only Milrendage <laughs> because it's virus. So it, it's always a lot of Milrendage in that piece of uh, vineyard. Because I can see that adding to a textural quality. It does. It does. It does. 
you get concentration out of mirandage, of course. It's a disease. Some Montrachet are famous for a small degree of botrytis at times. Yeah. Do you get that sometimes or no? I don't like botrytis with white wines. Oh, I hate with Pinot Noir, of course. Um, I'm very careful with botrytis. I think if you're like below 5%, it's not a big matter. But I think botrytis with Chardonnay hides the terroir. You get a botrytis Chardonnay. It's lovely, but you lose part of the real expression of the place. A lot of people in Merceau tend to use Dami, which is a cooper associated with Merceau. The Flev's used it in the past, and mm-hmm. also Rulo, right? Yes, yes. I'll, I think we've always used Dami uh, in my family, and it's a cooper from Merceau, so it's easy also. We know each other very well. And it's my main source of barrels for whites, only for whites. I don't use Dami for, for my red barrels. I tend to use Chassin now. I've done a lot of experiment trials with different coopers. Uh, for the whites, I also use a little bit of Sagamo, which is in Chani. I use also a little bit of Billon, which is actually Dami's brother. It's in Bone. And um, I've stopped asking the coopers. I want uh, the Allier, the Troncé, with a long, uh, warm um, burn and all this, like a description of what they should do to me, fine grains and whatever, with the time of air dry or, you know, all those things. Because, uh, first of all, those things vary from one cooper to another. And for over 15 years now, I stopped asking for that. But I do a tasting blind with all the coopers once a year. And I tell them, this, I like that. So do it again like this. And I just cannot stand that. So I don't want this barrel again. With Billon, I get him in and we tasted the barrel. It was like, listen, I don't like, we, I had like three, five as a test. I said, I don't like your barrels. I don't like your barrels. One year, two years, oh, I'm going to change. I don't like your barrels. And we've done that for like three or four years. And I was, after four years, I said, it doesn't work. It doesn't mean your barrels are bad. It's just not what I'm expecting, what I want for my wines. So I said, I'm going to stop. And the guy came back the year after, and he told me, listen, I want to give you two barrels because I thought of it. I worked on it. And uh, he found a way to make it nice, nice for me. So now I keep on buying barrels from him. But we test everything every year, and it's, it's a very interesting meeting because I have roughly five coopers, if you include reds and whites, and we prepare the samples blind, even myself, I don't know what it is, with on the side a sample on an old barrel to see the wine, and we, everybody describes the wine and the barrel and how we feel, and sometimes the cooper is going to say, I don't like this barrel, and it's his barrel. So it's, it's good arguments, and it's a good way to fine-tune the work they do and to make it to adjust to what I'm expecting. And you like to use burgundy barrels as opposed to punchins. I use a uh, normal burgundy-sized barrel because of tradition, I think, because it's the way it's been in burgundy. I've always seen that. I've always tried to stick to... Tradition doesn't mean I'm an old-fashioned, traditional guy, but I think the base has to be tradition. 
like balance in Merceau. And when I started the Héritier Contre Lafont in the Maconnais, I looked for how people were making the wine traditionally. And the tradition in the Macon area is ovals, big wooden tanks, and pensions. So nowadays, a lot of people use tennis steel, so that disappeared. But I really wanted to start and work this way, which is what I'm doing in Macon now. Maybe then the handling the wine and all this is um, more modern and more technical, but I like that base of having the pensions and having the ovals in the Maconnais because it's what people have always done. And I think it's quite successful. Macon wines are more simple in a way, and you want to protect the fruit, so you go in a larger volume. And aging in barrel is very strong on the wine. So if you don't have a strong wine, doesn't work. Do you see other differences between using barrels and punchins? Um, you keep the fruit. It's more reduced, of course. If I am not careful enough, sometimes slower fermentation because of lack of air. So, you know, those yeast, they need air. So the larger the volume is, the more issue you're going to have finishing the fermentation if you're not careful with oxygen. That I learned, I pay cash in Macron for that. <laughs> I had stuck fermentation, so I get like to think about it. Because usually when a, you have a slower ferment, you do tend to get more reduction, right? Or no? No. Actually, you get, uh, you get more reduction with fast fermentation with heavy leads. And fast fermentation is linked to a higher temperature. And that's when you get reduction. And the goal, reduction can be nice as long as it's controlled. Um, slow fermentation will lead to, I think, in a way, less reduction. And to the point that if the fermentations get very, very, very slow, the yeast will uh, start building oxidative notes to the wine, apple things like this, and you know you're like not in a good phase when you get there. Do you think that uh, slower fermentation is related to that hazelnut taste that sometimes people talk about with burgundy? No. No, not slow fermentation. It's funny, you know, because uh, old says, and you pick that and uh, you want to duplicate it because Everybody was saying, oh, I have long fermentation, it's better for my wine, blah, 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 and all that. And you hear that everywhere. And um, my father had a guy who was working in the cellar, Monsieur Belanger, wonderful man, who's known me as a kid, and uh, actually died fairly old, and I kept contact with him. I used to invite him every year to taste the wine with me. And... Uh, one day he came and visited uh, in the spring, March, April, and all my wines were going through malolactic fermentation. I gave him to taste the wine. I said, oh, your wines, they have not finished uh, the fermentations. And I said, uh, no, 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 the sugar fermentation is finished. No, no, it's not finished, it's fermenting. I was like, no, 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 but it's, it's because it's going through malolactic fermentation. But at this time, Nobody was checking malolactic fermentation. So it's like long fermentation included sugar and malolactic without knowing what was doing what. I think too fast is not good for Chardonnay. 
but too slow is not good either. So you got to find a middle thing, which is like, you know, wines should be fairly dry after, let's say, a month and a half in barrel. I don't like when I get to Christmas and uh, I still have sugar in the whites. And actually, it's not that bad if malolactic goes right after that. Because um, that's a good way also to keep the freshness in the wine. A too long period between sugar fermentation and malolactic fermentation with a wine which has no sulfur protection might lead also to uh, the molecule which is called ethanol. And ethanol binds sulfur, and then you have to add so much sulfur to the wine. It's not that good. So in the cellar in Merceau, what's the process for whites? First, they get into uh, fairly recent barrels or new barrels. Roughly, there's a, a third or less new barrel or nothing from the Merceau and Claude So they go through fermentation, alcoholic fermentation, malolactic fermentation, and they're kept in that cellar until end of July when I assemble all the cuvées in a tank, take all the leaves, no air, and put it back in all the barrels to finish the aging, which will last until, I would say, January to March next year, depending on the cuvées. I move up in tank in January, and then we start doing bottling in March until May, June, for the latest. What's your approach to lees in the Merceau cellar? Heavy sediments, heavy sediments. There's been a time when uh, I was doing less, and I got back to it. So out of a 50, 60 hectoliter tank of juice, maybe I take out 5 to 10 liters of earth, dirty earth, so almost nothing. I think that's interesting. We've done experiments, I've done trials like very clear juice, and fermentation is slower because it, there's not as much nutriment for the yeast, and the wine end up being more varietal and doesn't get as much of where it comes from. And those sediments leads you to that slight reduction. Reduction is an interesting subject also, and it's, it's a hard game to play. Um, there's no interest in putting in bottle on a wine which is reduced. Reduced is as much a defect as oxidized. But trying to get that edge of reduction is really great. And part of the work is with those leaves and then with the aging. And the edge of reduction protects the wine, gives that extra dimension to it. If you get to reduction, you get a bitterness in the finish. No, I don't like bitterness in white wines. And you close the, the flavors. You have a one-dimension kind of uh, aromas, which to me is not interesting. And it's also a defect. You know, it seems like more and more people, often in Merceau, are working with more reduction now to some degree. And one of the things that seems to be linked to reduction is less nitrogen in the soil. And you alluded earlier to people used to use a lot of nitrogen fertilizers. Do you see any link there? Could be. I think nitrogen uh, nitrogen is a, in the juice is something important because 
first of all, you might get stuck fermentation if you don't have enough nitrogen. It has an effect, of course, on reduction. To me, it, it indicates also where I am with fertilizing. The only thing I use as fertilizer is cow manure. Uh, it's dehydrated cow manure. Um, there's more than that to get to reduction. There's more than that. Because it might lead to that, but also if your yeast have not enough nutrient, they might go very, very, very slow, weak, and then you might get into SNL also, which goes reverse of reduction. Maybe you find more and more reduction uh, in the Mercer wines, uh, first of all, because uh, it's in fashion. People love it. I think it's because it's uh, recognizable. And it's like someone serious that everybody believes said, this smell means great wine. So then a lot of people take it as, well, I can recognize it, and that means great wine, so it's a great wine. That's very simple and basic. I fear we might go too far and just to please uh, the public. It's a defect. It's too much is a defect. It's really the edge of it which is interesting. Also, it's linked, of course, we have to talk about that. It's linked to Primark's problems. So if you show wine which has reduction, people have no fear in the aging. But I think you can produce wine which are on that edge of reduction, protected enough, and which will age just as well, and which will be much more beautiful than those who are very reduced. That's my point of view. Huge work has been done in, uh, in general in Burgundy about everything which has to do with dissolved oxygen. There's really, honestly, now a few growers who just don't care about it, but there's tools and the labs are offering it. Dissolved oxygen, which I've been working on uh, since the 2010 or so vintage, opened my eyes on a lot of practice. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because first of all, a guy came to check and we saw that there was something interesting. So we invested, we bought all the equipment and we followed everything, like how much dissolved oxygen we have in barrel when we rack, how much we arrive in tank, if we do finding, how much we get after finding, if ever we filter, how much we get after filtration. And we can follow all the way through before bottling, uh, in the bottle before the cork, in the bottle after cork, we followed all that and we found out that some places, if you do it wrong, you capture oxygen, which actually, when you've just bottled the wine, you don't smell or feel anything. After six months, you've lost the major part of your sulfur and the wine fades away. And it's combined with an average cork, which has not such a good seal, boom the wine is gone. So the variation is explained by the fact that no one cork is the same. So if you have a great seal and you get a little bit of dissolved oxygen, the wine might age well. But if you have the combination of dissolved oxygen plus a cork which doesn't seal very well, it's gone. And you moved to DM. And we moved to DM because just working on it also and trying to find the clue and uh, We've worked um, a lot. Uh, I went to uh, Portugal. I went to Spain. We met a lot of uh, cork dealers. We've done 
huge experiments on the surface treatment uh, using paraffin, on diameter, on origin, on all that. And those guys were like, oh, no, no, Michael, no problem, guaranteed, and all that. And I went to meetings, comparison things. I had started doing a little bit of jam in Macon, and it was always the best showing wine. I remember going to a meeting where people told me, okay, cork, the permeability to oxygen on any kind of cork might vary from 1 to 15. And I said, okay, done. I don't play that. Because how can I explain a client that he's had the 15 permeability, too bad for him. And even if you do everything perfect, like the winemaking, the dissolved oxygen, a great bottling, if you use a cork, after five years, you open 12 bottles, they will all be different. And I thought a lot about it, and I just thought it was not acceptable. And maybe it's, maybe uh, in the old time we had better corks, maybe in the old time we were not as careful about how the wine tastes like. Also, um, maybe um, wine making was heavier, wines were rougher in the old time. We are trying to show you more refinement, more terroir expression. So that leads to refinement, which we have to do because it's more interesting wine. You know, like that big heavy Merceau maybe was stronger, but it's intellectually, you don't have all the complexity. So we have to go in that direction, but being protective. And that's when you'll have the incredible wines, the, you know, the one that makes you smile and that just like shocks you because it's, uh, it's an experience. It's a unique experience. So what are the things in the cellar, specific practices that would lead to more dissolved oxygen? Well, anytime you use a pump, if it's not well sealed, the hose and all that, it's like you don't see anything and boom, it goes. If you move a wine in a tank and you don't neutralize with a nitrogen, you might get dissolved oxygen. And it's interesting because we've worked on that to make sure you have no oxygen in the tank you're pumping in. You need to send four times the volume of the tank in nitrogen. So... We bought a machine that produces nitrogen because we couldn't afford to have bottles, buying bottles all the time. So now we have that too. And we have a thing that checks in the tank that there's zero oxygen before we put uh, the wine into tank. We also um, send nitrogen in the bottle prior to bottling. We have a cleaner that injects nitrogen. If you don't inject enough, you get a little bit. Um, the filler, if it's not well sealed, get a little bit oxygen um the corking machine that's a vacuum if your vacuum doesn't work well you get oxygen so there's many different spots you really have to control and we bought a new tool a new toy last year where we can during bottling we can control all the time so we see exactly if one of these pieces on the bottling just turns wrong because like the last part, the vacuum, you can hear it, click, 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 and you think it works, but it doesn't. So now we can really control all the way through, and we're very, very, very serious about that. With that reduction thing, 
one of the things that takes reduction out is batonage. And I feel like a lot of people are doing less batonage these days. Does that seem true to you? Yes, globally. People do less batonage. Uh, still, some people do heavy batonage. I don't do much. Like my 17, they're almost two months in barrel now. They haven't seen any stirring yet. And maybe I'll do a couple, depending on how it tastes like. I think it has an effect in the barrel if you get too strong reduction. It's also because the lees settle and get compacted in the bottom of the, of the barrel. So if you stir the lees, you'll get rid of that reduction. That's one effect. It has an effect also to nourish the wine and maybe it might make the wine bigger. But to me, to a certain point, because then if you do too much of it, the wine will take the lees flavors, which is not what you want. In perspective of having to show the terroir and the origin. So it, it's always a balance. I have nothing against it, but I have not much for it. But I wouldn't say it's stupid to do batonage. It depends. And I don't think uh, you should do a lot. It's the same. It's been, it's been in fashion and like 20 years ago, you know, growers would say, oh, yes, I do batonage uh, once a week for six months. And uh, most people would say, oh, the wine must be very good. Somewhere it's been written that it's good to do batonage. So I imagine if I do more, it's even better because that's how people think. It's just more complicated than that. A lot of things about fashion and wine. There's been a huge fashion about new oak. Same, you know, it was like the more New York, the better the wine. And uh, your market has been very good for that. The US market has been very strong on that. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> you know, we it's going to be interesting uh, one day to think about how much the US have impacted the production of wine. And like, we want wine with New York, we want wine with reduction, we want wine, we want butterscotch wine, we want... You've been through all kind of style. It's also very interesting to think that some people who got into Burgundy and loved that beautiful butterscotch type of Meursault now just hate them and want it reduced when they didn't like the reduction. So New York, maybe there's been a time when it was too much, and I think it's a more normal regime now. It's more normal for everyone. Everyone is very careful about how much oak they're going to use, depending on the cuvee and the weight of the cuvee. I think once the Chinese start calling the shots on style, we'll think a lot in the past about how the Americans dictated yes. the 80s and yes. the 90s. You know, I don't have much contact with the Chinese people now, so I don't know. From what I hear, they drink red wines, so they leave us quiet at the moment on white wines. So about your red wines, you make a few different Volnais, you said, Clos de Chêne, yes. Champagne, Saint-Anneau de Milieu, yes. and then you've also started making some bone wine, right? Yeah, that's under the Dominique Lafontaine, which is another project I started in uh, 2008. It's four hectares, so it's very small, and almost half of it is Bourgogne Blanc. And then I have a small piece of Meursault, small piece of Meursault Narro, small piece of puligny changin And I have uh, one hectare in Volnay Premier Cru Luret and Volnay combined. So it's a third an actor of Volnay Premier Cru and two thirds of Volnay. 
I have a third anector in Bone Premier Cru Epnot. And actually, I also have a shipper license because I make the wine in a place which is a custom crush, so I have to be a shipper. Even if it's my vineyards, I have to be a shipper. And in 2014, my Bone Epnot vineyard got hailed, destroyed, fully destroyed by hail. So I was like, I need a little bit of bone for my production, and my production was so small. So I looked for grapes, and I got into a guy who was selling an amazing vineyard in the Bonneville Franche. So I took the entire vineyard, and I've uh, made lovely wines out of it. And same guy has property in the Bonne which is an amazing vineyard in Bonne. It's maybe the best vineyard in Bonne. So I pushed on him and said, hey, you know, now that I've got your Vin Franche and I'm a good payer, I'd like to have some Bonne Grève too. So now I have from the same person, the Bonne Vigne Franche and the Bonne Grève. So it's three Bonne in a row, three premier crew from Bonne. I'm attracted by Bonne. I think this potential, a lot of great wines are produced and it's very affordable. I mean, if you talk land, vineyard price, it's half the price of Volnay Premier Cru. And if you, as a shipper, if you buy bulk, it's cheaper than Volnay Premier Cru also. So that makes wine that arrives on the market at a more affordable price than the Volnay Premier Cru. So after working for a number of years with some of the key Volnay Cru's, what was it like moving to bone fruit? Did you see differences? Or? I have a kind of a lightness in the bone hypnot. I find the same, but more tension and more mineral in the bone grève. And the bone Vinfranche has quite a nice weight to it. So when you're on that lighter side, more elegant, you want to be very careful on extraction and on tannins because, you know, even light tannins might overpower the wine. And when you have a vineyard that makes more powerful wine, you know, you can push a little bit more into extraction because it's, it's going to melt really well with the fruit, so with the intensity of fruit. Every time you meet another place, it's like meeting people. You've got to get to know them, and it takes a bit of time, but it's interesting. It's also interesting because it's in a custom crush facility, right? I mean, that's somewhat unique in Burgundy. Yes, uh, we're the only one. My partner is uh, Pierre Merger, longtime friend, and actually we had the chance, I had a chance to take over that place, which is huge, huge. Pierre was looking for space. I was not satisfied with where I was making my Dominique Lafont wines. So I went into it and uh, we had the chance. It was a shipper that was stopping its activity. We bought all the equipment. So we had my equipment plus the prior shipper equipment, great equipment. So we got into it and I said to Pierre, listen, you know, we have to share that. We have a lot of space and we have 10 clients. Uh, there's a great ambience. It's sharing. And it's also, it's a great opportunity because they're all shippers. They all buy grapes. But some are just starting and for them, like making five barrels of a wine, it's a lot. And sometimes you'll get to a producer who sells his grapes but has like 15 barrels to sell. And if, if you don't take it, it's going to sell it to someone else. And so we go back to the place and say, hey, I'll take five, but there's 10 more to take. Who is interested? And usually it does work. So it gives us a nice potential for buying what we are interested in also. It's just starting, but I think there will be more of that. Because that's definitely something I've seen in California and Oregon 
the growers get together like that and they say, I'll take this much, you take this much, we could take the whole vineyard. Yes. And so with those Volnay crews with the Complafon cellar, what's the difference between Clos de Chêne and Champagne and Sentinel? I think Champagne is the stronger, the more powerful, richer, with great tension. A big part of the vineyard is 98 years old now. Clodichen is the most elegant in food, the most, as I said, in the air, with a kind of great minerality tension in the finish. Anyway, it's not just like in the air and soft and nice and kind. There's a, a great grip in the finish. And Sentinel would maybe combine both. It's more elegant than Champagne, but in terms of richness and density, it's close to what we get to Champagne. Everything is more maybe in balance with the Sentinel when it's young. It's like everything is here. And then one of the last harvests you do every year is in Monthly, right? Yes. That's the latest ripen because it, it's in the back. And that valley, which leads to uh, small villages like Nantou and all that, it's open to the north, north wind. So it's always cooler, which is great in uh, super hot years, of course. I imagine that. You picked up some things working with red wines in, in Oregon, right? With Evening Land and then Lingua mm-hmm. Franco. Were there ideas you picked up in Oregon that you brought back to Burgundy? Or how did it work? You know, the more you add projects, the more they feed each other. First of all, I don't think you can get to Oregon saying, I'm going to tell you exactly how we do in Burgundy and we are going to duplicate. It's just so stupid because you have to feel where you are. You have to... Be connected to the place and you have to find the right way to do it in relation with the place and the potential. So it makes you think. And so you have to find different paths to get through that. So that means that you're, what you know, you have to change it a little bit. But what you find working in Oregon feeds your knowledge. And when you go back home, you know more than... Uh, before. Maybe it doesn't make me change a lot of my making in Burgundy, but if I find a good trick, I'm going to use it. The vision and the understanding of what you do in every place gets stronger. What are some of the key differences between working in Oregon and working in Burgundy? First of all, we we have one vineyard. And it's one single place, which is uh, 60 acres, one plot. So we work blocks and all that, but it's a different attitude. You know, you don't have like one piece here, one piece there. And well, there's variation from the top to the lower part, which we have to learn, understand. And then there's also different clones. So it's going to lead to different type of wines, of course, but it's one place. And so in the end, if we produce an estate wine, it's going to be a blend of what we think is the best of it. And maybe we'll, we'll do a more simple cuvee with what we think is not up to the standard of an estate. And maybe we'll do a super cuvee with one small piece which succeeded well. Uh, it's something which you don't at all do in Burgundy. It's like one shot, you know, one vineyard, one load of grape, one wine. And you don't want to mess around because, uh, you know, if you handle Vendée Champagne, for me, it's one tank. It's got to be a great wine in the end. If you blend, 
if you have one tank which goes wrong, you have other tanks to do the blending. So it's a different attitude. It doesn't mean you want to do it wrong, but you have more chance. Then um, uh, there's amazing Mexican crew there, and they are so skilled, and so uh, I'm jealous. <laughs> you can get so many uh, workers at the same time to do one piece of work that it gets done fast. You know, all the discussion we might have between the US and Europe or France and whatever. Uh, but it makes things easier. Oregon is very similar in a way in climate with Burgundy. It's kind of cool. It's easier because if you pick early enough, it never rains. There's no botrytis. There's no tiny mildew. So usually you get to nice grapes every year and ripe. There's no ripeness issue to me in Oregon, whether white or red. Then winemaking, uh, it's close. It's close. We work more on length of fermentation for the reds, macerations, which has to be adapted. Extract is one of If you make red, ripeness, where you want to be, and extraction are the two keys. And so you want to fine tune that and you just don't want to do, like say, oh, I'm doing three weeks of maceration in Burgundy, so that's what you should do here in Oregon. Uh, that makes no sense. You have to think of it. You have to taste and see where you are. And for the whites, like the picking dates is very tricky. It's very precise. And maybe we, we don't get exactly the same grapes, but we want to have, I want to be in the same idea, in the same, like, what do we like? What I've pushed in the two projects I have done in Oregon is elegance because I've always thought it's very easy to make big wines, big, ripe, with a lot of new wood. You can do it anywhere on the planet. Refinement is another challenge. So it's more work, it's more thinking, it's proper ripeness, intelligent and elegant winemaking it's thinking of uh, the way you age it the time of aging which will be maybe different than what you do in burgundy to keep the freshness to keep everything nice and the last challenge is to get people convinced that you are going in the right direction because if you talk about pinot in the US, uh, the successful ones are pretty big. Still, it's interesting because uh, they are the ones successful, but then people like to drink lighter style. Uh, but what works, the great cuvées, uh, whether for journalists or that have success, are pretty big. So um, I try to resist to that because I think this more to offer in Oregon than power and big fat wines. It's a place where you can go to refinement and elegance, and we're working on it. It seems like in Oregon you've had to deal with some warm vintages, where in the Cote de Bonne you've had to deal with some frost and hail recently. Yes, but I think we'll go back to late vintages in Oregon because the issue in Oregon is springtime, because... Bud break can happen fairly early, just like almost in Burgundy, or sometimes spring is cold, 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 and you get bud break very late. And this is why then you get blooming late and you get late harvest. 
So even with global warming, I think that will still happen. And I've been working in Oregon for 10 years, so now I know how it works. If you get early bird break, you're going to pick early. If you get late bird break, phew, you might go end of September, 15th of October, which is in a way more tricky, but possible. The only thing maybe, and that's the way I think, is that you cannot carry a big grape load on the vines if you know you're going to harvest after the, the 1st of October, because uh, it's going to be harder to ripen everything. That's the game. But other than, than that, uh, yeah, there's been early vintages, surprisingly early vintages in Oregon recently. Also, I think we tend to pick quite early. There's a very strong impact of some people who follow the vineyards, like vineyard managers, who think it's not going to be ripe if it's lower than 23, 24 bricks, and then it's already very ripe. You are into the very ripe side. I think you can pick Oregon 22 bricks and have ripe fruit. You don't have to go that far. You don't have to go through hanging. You don't have to go through shriveling, which in terms of freshness of fruit, you lose to me, you lose a lot. So if you pick like a week earlier than what is normal in the valley, that makes for early vintages. But it's just because you change your habits. Does it surprise you that there's so many Burgundians working in Oregon today? No surprise. No surprise because there's always been a great link between Oregon and Burgundy. I first visited Oregon in 81. I was invited at the first IPNC when I was working with Becky. We had the contract to sell Francois Ferrand We had all those Oregon guys visiting year after year. We got friends with uh, the Ponzi, Adelsheim, everybody, you know, all the pioneers. And, you know, I remember uh, visiting uh, for IPNC in 87 or 88, Gérard Potel, Michel Lafarge. And all those IPNC thing also made a lot of contact between Oregon and Burgundy. So I think as Burgundian, we get to know what was going on in Oregon. We got to taste the wine. We got to have an interest for their production. And I think when the industry got strong enough, because they struggled a lot before, that's when Burgundian, well, Drouin has been first, of course, as a real pioneer. But the last movement, maybe I started 10 years ago, and then uh, it's been added by Louis-Michel Gébelair and Jean-Nicolas Méo and uh, Jadot now. It's more recent. It's also because um, things are going better in Oregon. There's more interest in the wine. They get good money for their production. And it's maybe also from a Burgundian point of view, vineyards are not that expensive. The wines are nice. There's vineyards for sale. There's land for sale. The ambience there is outstanding. You are very, very, very welcome as a Burgundian when you start working in Oregon. It's very friendly. There's a great feeling and motivation to do better and to share. So it's nice also. It's really nice to work in Oregon for all those reasons. It seems like another place where there's been some land availability and some opportunity for growth was in the Macon, which is a project that yes. you started in a big way. Yes, I started in 99. I bought seven hectares, and now we're up 26 hectares. So it's a huge move in a, a bit less than 20 years. 
and now I'm slowing down because it's already pretty big. But the last adjustment I have done was because I've been offered Saint-Véran and Puy-Fusé, so I said, yes, I'm going to take it. But uh, I was already 21 actors, which is a nice size already. So now I can be, can be a cherry picker in, in the Maconnet because I'm at a beautiful size, which would have been just impossible in the Côte d'Or, just impossible. So yes, the Fleve has vineyard in the Maconnet. Jean-Marc Boyot just bought recently a vineyard next door to me. And Jadot has always had properties in the Maconnet and the Negos, and they bought Ferré, which is a magical place. So how would you compare terroirs like Macon Millie Lamartine, which you make a, a really nice bottling out of, versus Vere Classé, Saint-Veron, Poulifoussé? How are these things different? First of all, thank you for not asking me how I compare the Macon and the Meursault, because it's been hard at the beginning. People were expecting me to do uh, almost like uh, the Meursault in Macon and like what I would call Little Meursault in Macon, and then they got disappointed. One of the first vintages I've done, a kind of a journalist, I don't know who he was, put my Macon Mille Martin aside with a Cantor Charlemagne from Modon du Matre and a morceau from Coche du Riz and said that wine didn't show well at all. And I called him and said, hey, you know, if we knew that it's possible to make wine in Macon just as good as Cantor Charlemagne or Meursault, you know, it's a long time everybody would have gone there. So Macon is Macon, and the Côte d'Or is the Côte d'Or in style, first of all. Macon, to me, there's something more luscious in the food. There's something more upfront. There's something more satisfying, easy to drink, and this is the style. It's always gentle. To me, I want it light and elegant, easy drinking. Then I have the chance now to work from the most southern part in the Maconnet, because I do Puy-Fusé in Vergisson and Saint-Véran in Prissé, and then I have vineyards in Mille, Amartine, Bussière, and I work also in the most northern part of the Maconnet with the village of Chardonnay and the village of Uchisi. So there's a lot of nuances in the Macon area. There's different valleys, there's different exposure. Some places are cold, some places are early ripening. One of the first questions people ask me is like, oh, it's in the Maconnet, so you're south of Burgundy, so you pick earlier. I said, um, yes, maybe, but not exactly. Because some places are like the Chardonnay, Macron Chardonnay, northern part, interesting, and Macron Uchisi, northern part, are actually lower in altitude, turned facing south, and they are the first I pick. And it always tends to make rounder, softer wines, the slightly lower acidity, and the most like this being my Uchisi, which is a single vineyard, because the Macron Chardonnay is called uh, Claude La Crochette, and the subsoil, I think, brings a nice tension to it. But anyway, it's, it's ripe. It's always ripe and open. And if you compare with other Macron, Lavon, I'm doing Mille Martine, it's much higher in altitude, facing east. And to give you an idea, I pick it two weeks after the Macron Chardonnay. So it's a long picking time. That shows for a huge difference. Mila Martin, lean, tension, high acid. At this stage, you go to my cellar, just so like uh, when the fermentations are almost finished or finished, the Mila Martin, they taste like grapefruit juice. So like 
acid, like tight and all that, very much on lemony, grapefruit, and they built with aging, but uh, it's always a wine with tension, uh, leaner, and outstanding on very warm vintages because it, it never gets overripe there. I do uh, Ma Convusière, which is next to me La Martine, which is, has that same kind of uh, acidity, tension in the finish, but it's turned southwest. It ripens a little bit earlier, so there's something gentle and more yellow fruit in flavors or flowers than what we get in Mille Martine. And then Cruz of uh, the Maconnet, like in 2009, I added seven hectares in Viré-Clessé. My vineyards are on the village of Viré. It's an amazing place, I think. Viré is, first of all, an historical place in the Maconnet, and it's always been before. It was called Viré-Clessé, it was called Macon-Viré or Macon-Clessé. And I remember when I was working with Becky, we used to buy Macon Viré from the Carp in Viré because it was the best Carp of the Maconnet. And there's a great potential there. So it's good they built that appellation now 15 years ago, even if it's slightly hard to convince people like this is from the Maconnet and this is great. It's going to come with time. Viré is fairly heavy clay with a very interesting subsoil. I think. So the wines have richness, power. They are luscious. But in Viré, actually, where I have my vineyards, there's an incredible tension, incredible finish, great length. It's also part of the fact that the average age of the vine is like 60 years old. In those old selections, there's a little bit of that Muscat-y Chardonnay but not the clone, the real old muscle, which is just like a beauty. So it adds a little bit of floral quality to this wine. That's my favorite of your make wines, the very close. It's my favorite too. Um, then we added uh, Saint-Véran in uh, 2014, and we added another vineyard in a different place in 2016. Saint-Véran ripens, for, uh, you know, we're, we're south, we go all the way south, but it's lower in altitude. We picked very early. It ripens fast. Saint-Véran is always kind of a luscious, round, easy, uh, not as much tension as uh, what we get in Viré-Clessé, actually, but very pleasant. So first vintage, 2014, so three vintages now, so I'm still learning. Last, I have some Pouilly-Fusé, all situated in the same place in Vergisson, almost facing north, so the opposite of the image of the big, luscious Pouilly-Fusset. Our Pouilly-Fusset has tension, is lean, it's picked amongst the last grapes we pick. But if you talk about pouilly it's hard to describe a style of pouilly because there's so many villages, so they are very different in style. Maybe it's a problem because uh, if you don't like big wines, you might hit into very big wines in pouilly but if you don't like lean wines, you might also hit into quite lean wines in pouilly so mine actually is lean and tension. We've spoken about some wines in your portfolio that are bigger and some that are leaner. Do you alter your approach to finding when you're dealing with white wines? In a way, yes. I do a lot of experiment test on finding. And usually the way it works is that if you have a lot of material, you can cut into it, usually. And finding to me is like taking 
the sides off to show the beauty and principal character of the wine. So sometimes you have kind of off flavors which cover the wine a little bit and you can just like strip it a little bit and you show the refinement. So it's true that if you have a big power, you can go stronger into it. Of course, it reacts better. A light, very light wine, if you go into finding and you go a little bit strong, boom, you strip it, it disappears. And when you run those tests and when you taste the test, it's really like you see, boom, you do 10 graphs of bentonite, it's great, and 10 of casein, and then you move 20 of bentonite and you lose the wine. It's funny, and usually when I do that, and I do that with other people, it's interesting that we all agree. It's like obvious. Once I, I had a, one of my clients who said, oh, you're finding wine, this is so stupid, why do you do that? You strip the wine, you take off of the wine. I said, okay, I have to work on that now, so please come with me. And he was amazed. And actually, he agreed with me. He said, yeah, this one is good. And this find like this is better than not find. But if you go further, you lose everything. It's a very interesting thing. Been working on that since 96 or so. Actually, I had an, a great intern at that time, Jean-Philippe Brett from the Brett Brothers. And I told him, I want to know. I want to know how it goes. So we, we've set all these things. We get an understanding. And then I asked the lab, okay, now I want you to run tests every year on all my wines. Which first they said, ah, oh, no, 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 we shouldn't. No, no, not possible. Because in the old time, it was like a recipe. Or every wine the same. And I, I convinced them to do it. And we started working with the lab on that. And now they send it to everybody. Because I think most white burgundy producers that are really good, fine, right? Oh, yeah. But yeah. less common for red, right? Or... Yes. Myself, I've stopped finding reds in, uh, I think the last trial was 95, when I found out that the wine was more cloudy after finding than before finding. I decided, I said, well, maybe I don't know how to do it. And so I don't find the reds. In terms of people that I've talked to, it seems like you in particular run a lot of trials. Yeah. I think maybe you have a more scientific mind that way. But have there been trials that we haven't talked about? Yeah. I think to prepare a wine to bottling, you really have to know what you're doing and where you're going. So I might do filtration, and I found a company which sells those pads, which are really light and nice, and I can push bottles to them. And I can have like, well, of course, no filtration. It's back home. I can have light filtration. I can have a slight stronger filtration and a very strong filtration. And I can test and taste the result. It's amazing. It's amazing. I got into that four or five years ago. I discovered something. Might look stupid and very strange if I tell you that for some wines, the strong filtration might be better than the light filtration. And for other wines, it's reverse. So it's, it's been a new world for me, a new thing. And it's very, very interesting. Does that vary to the year? It varies to the year. It varies to a lot of things. An example, the first year I really run those tests and things uh, was 2000. 
2012. Okay. In 2012, the Reds were really hit three times by hail. I thought before bottling, I had quite rough tenants. I didn't like it. I was like, oh, it's kind of rough. It's kind of tough. And uh, uh, I was uh, worried about the, the final thing. And the wine was quite cloudy. And so because reds, you know, I might filter, not filter, but it was quite cloudy too. So I run those filter tests and the stronger I was doing filtration, the softer the tannins were and the nicer the fruit was and the better the wine was. And it happens that uh, as we're in New York, uh, uh, yesterday I had lunch and they were pouring that 2012 Venet and I was kind of, oh, oh my God, that's the harsh tannin wine. And it's all beautiful. It's all nice, soft. And I think without that strong filtration, I would not have achieved such a wine. So that's a 2012 epiphany. When you look back at your career, do you peg certain realizations or alterations in what you're up to with certain years? Do you look, you know, over the course of, say, since the mid-80s to now and say, like, well, that's pre and post. <laughs> yes, in know? a way. Yeah. Because I think when you make wine, you learn every year. And, you know, I've been doing it for 30 years, but it's only 30 vintages. And uh, I always think the best is next one. So you build experience year after year. When you have Comte Lafont in hand, the switch has to be very carefully done with time also. But there has been time when I was like not exactly satisfied with what I was doing, working on it, thinking of it, of it, trying a few things. And then at a time you say, okay, now I find, I've found what I need to do and all the tool or whatever. And it's sometimes asking people because we share a lot of things with uh, all our friends, but there's, you beyond your experience. Honestly, I think I'm quite good because I've done a lot of mistakes and you do mistakes all your life. And that's on mistakes that you learn how to improve and not do it again. I work a lot with young people. I always tell them it's not a problem if you do mistakes, just as long as you don't do it again, because that's how you learn. So, yes, some of the wines I made are not that good. It's a mistake, but I've, I think I've learned on it. And it's a life. It's a track you do. I couldn't have been a winemaker starting over 30 years ago, like Comte Lafont, the wines are made like this, set, done, tradition, keep on doing it. You kill yourself. You lose your brain, you lose your mind, you lose your soul. I heard from uh, Elio Altare, a great guy in, uh, in Italy, who says that tradition is an innovation which succeeded. Do you look back at certain vintages as particularly tricky or particularly... Easy? Easy, never. Tricky, yes. <laughs> no, tricky, uh, like 98, I was moving uh, organic. Uh, we got frost, we got polymilieu. It was a fight in the vineyard all year. I was not satisfied. We had such a small crop. It was bad also. But the reds are marvelous. And the, I didn't like the whites, but it turned out now that they're showing well. I don't know why. I don't understand why. Uh, because maybe I was, I've been very careful on it because I was frightened by what I had. You get more frightened with, uh, when you run vineyards because you're outside 
and uh, you know, with what happened in Burgundy, storms, cold, things like this. That's why I get most of my stress. It's running vineyards. It's uh, it's hard. It's hard because uh, if you don't do that correctly, you will not have the right level of grapes to make the great wines. That's it. Then the winemaking is the, just preserving it. And once you push the button, harvest and all that, we know how to do it. We're just like, whoa, 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 it goes. And I, I have enough experience to, to react fast enough on where we are, what we do. So I would say uh, harvest, crushing, making the wine is the best part of the year. It's fun. It's uh, tiring, but it's fun. I love it. And I, I don't get stress on that. What do you think you'll be thinking about in the next five, 10 years? We're very much at the moment, and it takes a lot of my time working on uh, who's going to take over Comte Lafon, who in the family, because it's a big family. You know, it's owned by uh, 10 shareholders. We're seven at my generation. We have to get that ready. So that's most of what I think of at the moment. Dominique Lafon believes it's important to have change to keep hold of your soul. Thank you very much for being here today. Great pleasure. Thank you. Dominique Lafon of Comp Lafon in Merceau, La Heritage de Comp Lafon in the Macon, and the Dominique Lafon label in Burgundy, as well as consulting projects in Oregon at Lingua Franca. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. As we finish up this episode, I'd like to point out that I read two interviews with Dominique Lafon published by Decanter while doing background research for this episode. One of those was conducted by Stephen Brook and the other by Clive Coates. I also read an interview with Dominique that Catherine Cole did for Wine Searcher. I'd recommend all of those to anyone wanting further information. They help me inform questions that I asked Dominique. I'd also like to thank Daniel Jonas for helping make this episode possible.